as we've moved through Scripture, we've been doing this whole story of God and following God for the past year and a half from before Genesis, before creation, all the way through his creation, through Adam, through Adam and Eve, down through Noah, through Abraham, uh, through Isaac, Jacob, into Israel, to the nation of Israel, uh, to bondage, to freedom, to the land, to building the temple, to the kings, to the judges. All of that, we follow this promise of God of a Savior. And we follow that into Christ, who was born among these people, uh, this nation of Jewish people. And now... Christ has risen from the dead, been crucified, risen from the dead, and he's empowered his disciples to birth and grow his church. And he's spread that church now uh, to the world, back out from just the Jews, back out. Uh, today, though, really quick side note, is kind of a cool day in, in the Jewish world. So if the Israelite world, Jewish world, uh, it's Yom Kippur. It starts tonight at midnight. It's a 24 hours, just a day. We might know it better as Day of Atonement. It comes from Leviticus 16. It's the most holy day in Judaism or to the Jews. Um, And for good reason. It's the one day out of the year when the high priest, one man, could go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and could um, seek atonement from God, seek forgiveness for the sins of the people and and spread, sprinkle blood on the uh, ark behind the veil. Only time he could go. And if he came back out, so he... Sacrifice the lamb, carry the blood back, sprinkle it on the mercy seat, which was the top of the ark. And if he came back, because God, it's the one time out of the year, it's that holy of a moment. If he came back, then it was a sign that God had accepted forgiveness or offered or extended forgiveness. And then a scapegoat, a goat, literally called a scapegoat, the sins of the people were ceremonially placed on that goat and he was chased out of the city. You can read all this in Leviticus 16. They do it every year. This year, obviously, now they don't have a temple, so they don't do that. Now it looks a little different. They fast for 24 hours. They wear white if they're real loyal. They do a lot of family stuff. They do a big kind of party thing at the end of it. But the main focus of the 24-hour period is seeking people they may have wronged and trying to gain a forgiveness and make things right with people they, they may have wronged. Oh, that's pretty. But the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 points to Christ, as does the whole book. That's what we've been doing from the very beginning. Christ is the blood that was taken to the mercy seat. Christ is the one who died on the cross and spread his blood to be carried to the mercy seat to seek forgiveness from God. Christ is the scapegoat that was chased out carrying the sins of the people. Though he was innocent, he was crucified for the wicked. Christ is even the high priest who carried his own blood to the heavens, to the throne of God. And Christ returned, resurrected to prove and show that God had accepted that sacrifice and forgiveness was available. So the whole thing pictures him. That really has nothing whatsoever to do with the text today. But... But because it's a holiday for them and it's the holiest day of the year, I'm sharing it with you. Because for me, I think that's really cool because it pictures Christ so well. So Leviticus chapter 19, let's jump in here. Title today, Overcoming the Occult. Okay? Overcoming the Occult. All right? Um, What is the occult? I think we all have images that pop in our head. Maybe fire, like the one there. I don't know. But... 
what is the occult? According to one definition, uh, the occult, in the broadest sense, is a category of supernatural beliefs and practices which generally fall outside the scope of organized religion or science and encompasses phenomena involving otherworldly agencies such as magic and mysticism and their very various spells. Uh, what stands out to me in that definition is outside the scope of religion. Is the occult outside the scope of religion, in particular Christianity, because that's what kind of church we are, and that's who we are, and that's why we're here. Is the occult outside of Christianity? Well, it's, we've just been following the Bible, but it's pretty good timing on God's part here that we would be at this at this time of year because all of the Halloween stuff's starting to pop back out. All the stores are starting to fill with Halloween things. I am not fixing to bash Halloween. Don't freak out. This time of year is my favorite time of year. But just the fact that so much of that's coming back out, all these horror movies and all these things that are coming back out, you've got zombies, evil spirits, vampires. Some of them go by name, Freddy, Jason, Michael Myers, all these, you know, things like that. And you've got haunted houses and possessed dolls and just all kinds of craziness. But at their core, regardless of what they're called in the movie or whatnot, regardless of all of that, at their core is spiritual darkness. It's spiritual forces of darkness. And the heroes in all of these stories typically use objects of supposed power, like crosses or crucifixes uh, or, or some kind of religious device, holy water, that is supposed to carry uh, power, but sometimes they use Jesus' name like a magic word, as though speaking his name carries some kind of power. Ex- exorcists, ghost hunters, all these things. Can these people or these things conquer the occult? Do they really have the power to do that? That's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. So I always give you kind of a thought to hold on to as we go through the text. This is not. Scripture, this is just me. It's on the sheets if you grabbed one in the back. If you didn't, it's not a problem. It's not Scripture. It's just me. But Jesus is not a magic word. Jesus is not a magic word. If you claim his name, you better know him. And if you do know him, you better know your enemy as well. So that's that's kind of the one statement for today. All right? So, Paul, we've been talking about him. He travels. Uh, his travels now brought him to Ephesus. So you got the map still? No, yes. So we've been following him a little bit, and now you can see where Ephesus is up there in Asia. I don't know if you can or not, but it's up there almost top left center, almost in the center. That's where he is at this point in time. Uh, what do you need to know about Ephesus? Well, here's the thing with Ephesus. Paul summed it up really well later. He wrote a letter back to the church in Ephesus, and he made this statement. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It's not just a statement he's making. He's sending that to the, F- the church in Ephesus for a reason. That was the world they lived in. Ephesus, as you noticed, was a port city. So it got lots of traffic. It was in modern-day Turkey, but that's the Aegean Sea. It's the third largest city, or was, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. You had Rome, obviously, and then Alexandria and Egypt, and then Ephesus. It was massive. Um, 
It was where rivers connected. It was mostly known because these major highways connected there, traffic lines of people moving through there constantly. But mythology claims that Ephesus was founded by Amazons, in particular, a goddess of the Amazons known to the Greeks as Artemis, known to the Romans as Diana, same one, known to the Americans as Wonder Woman. It's the same character. Wonder Woman is based off of Diana. Um, in Ephesus, she was the most worshipped goddess, really, of the whole ancient world. Verse 27 tells you that, and it's chapter 19 here. But, but she was worshipped big time. She was the whole world of Ephesus, for sure. And there was a massive temple to her. They had coins that had her image on it. Some historians who actually saw this temple, it's obviously gone now, but some of the historians who said it claimed that it was more awe-inspiring than the pyramids. That's a rendering, nobody's sure, but it, it was a wonder of the world in this time. Now, that I think I got one more picture. This is all that's left of it. That's still there in uh, Turkey, in Ephesus, where it was. So it's still standing in some pieces. Anyway, it was built in 550 B.C. and destroyed in 400 A.D. So it lasted close to a thousand years with some rebuilds and remodels. So this was a big, big object of worship in Ephesus. Ephesus was known for spells, for incantations, for magicians, for curses. Uh, there are these things called Ephesian scrolls that were well known. There are still some around. Um, I don't know if Smithsonian has it, but museums that collect. And they... Uh, had lists of spells on them, and they'd even have demons' names or spiritual names that you could invoke and magic spells you could quote and say. Um, and even the Jewish God is among them because they considered, hey, he's a probably powerful God too. He did legendary stuff, so they use him. So that's the context. Let's lay in here really quick. Um, verse 8, Paul Enters the synagogue when he arrives in Ephesus. Shocker, that's the usual for him. You should know that. We've talked about it already. And for three months, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. I love that. He goes to the people he knows. He goes where the Bible or the word of God is. And taking the word of God and speaking to these people who should know God, he begins to persuade boldly. No shame. Jesus is him. Is Jesus God? Yes. Let me show you. Boom. I mean, he is persuading, too. Reasoning and convincing. giving Not just saying, it's a fact, take it or leave it. It's a fact, I don't care what you think. Reasoning means, hey, let's talk about it. What are your questions? Let me help you find answers. He is doing this for three months. And he's not just talking about straight, Jesus died for your sins, repent and believe. He's talking about the kingdom. Like, what's his plan? Why did he do that? What's the goal? Where's all this headed? Like the whole thing. But when some became stubborn. So they didn't start that way, but the more they hear it, they decide, they, 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 I'm, I'm not cool with this, and continued in unbelief. So they literally decide this is not true. I don't want to hear anymore. Stop their ears. They don't want to hear it. Speaking, and then it, it turns to speaking evil of the way. That's the, one of the titles that was used for Christianity. Uh, before the word Christianity applied so heavily. Speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So now they're, they've gone from enduring it to turning around and speaking to the synagogue and saying this is evil. 
Paul withdrew from them and he took his disciples with him. And he reasons daily now in the hall of Tyrannus. So hall there is the word school. That's the Greek word we get school from. Uh, so this is a school of a person named Tyrannus. So I know, don't know much about him, but it doesn't really matter. It's a school. And privately owned, it would appear, school. And so this is almost like a church plant. They've been meeting and growing in this kind of shared space with another, quote, church. But now they've moved into a school. And they're beginning to meet in this school, and he continues on to do what he's doing. Um, it says, this continued, verse 10, for two years. So they meet in this school for two years. And all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this doesn't mean every single soul. This is just like we would say, hey, everybody come. You know, or or the whole, all of... Phoenix was celebrating New Year's. Does that mean we counted every person to make sure they were there? No. Uh, but that's kind of the point, that everybody had heard. And the reason it says all of Asia is because if Ephesus was such a trafficked city that people were coming in and hearing it and going on and coming in and hearing it and going on. So this little bitty church plant in this little bitty school has now got People from all over the world hearing the gospel, hearing it says the word of the Lord. That's where the power of all this is. Notice that Paul is teaching the word. He's not just telling you what he thinks, how he feels. He's teaching the word. Verse 11. And here comes where it gets wild. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, let me just pause you there before we read the next part that everybody goes, why? What does extraordinary mean? Well, in the original language, it means negative ordinary, or as we would say, not ordinary. Whatever we're about to read was not ordinary. It was not usual. And then it says miracles. That word miracle is literally power. So God was doing no ordinary powers is what's happening here. God is doing no, not ordinary powers. And it says by the hands of Paul. So this is not all the disciples. This is not even all the apostles. This is just a very unique thing happening with Paul through God. Or excuse me, God through Paul. Verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs, that word is bandanas, and it literally applies to a work thing. So think about you're out there sweating. You tie a bandana around your head to keep sweat out of your eyes. Or aprons, also a work item that you would wear when you were working. In Paul's case, he was a tent maker. So he would have worn an apron and probably a bandana out to keep sweat off of him and protect his clothes. That had touched his skin while he was working. They were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Let me make some observations quickly. First of all, notice that they are taken from Paul. It, he leaves them laying somewhere. Somebody picks them up and takes them. These are not items that were brought to Paul and said, hey, bless this for me. Or put your hands on this for me. Or anoint this for me. None of that was the case. These were things that people picked up and took from Paul. Uh, there are, I haven't seen it in a while, but it was popular years back. Um, prayer cloths, some denominations will call them that offer them, particularly online or in videos or whatever, where there are stacks of them and, and pastors pray over them. And for your gift, quote-unquote, of X amount of money, 
you can get a prayer cloth sent to you, and you can it's been prayed over and anointed, and you can take that prayer cloth and lay it on your tumor, and it'll go away, or whatever the healing is that you need in particular. And they get that from this particular thing here. But did it, this was not, he just said not ordinary. This was not ordinary. This is something that's only happening here. Why? Well, because Ephesus was a centerpiece of magic and sorcery. In fact, mythology, mystic power, all of it is birthed out of Ephesus in schools. Literally, schools that would teach this kind of thing. This extraordinary power is only God's presence with Paul. Paul's not shooting fire out of his fingers. This is God's presence with Paul in Ephesus at this point in time and history as the gospel spreads there for the first time. As people are hearing about Jesus for the first time. And this is not the point of the passage anyway. I don't know why everybody zooms in on it. This is not the point. Keep reading. Verse 13. Then, at that time, as that is going on with Paul and the an extraordinary hand of God and movement. At that same time, some itinerant or traveling Jewish exorcists, so that's their profession, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. And we don't know anything about this guy. Uh, that's not a Jewish name. So what, if we knew what his Hebrew name was, maybe we'd know who this was. But it doesn't make any difference. Uh, you, he has seven sons, and all of these sons are now exorcists, and they're doing this thing. Verse 15. But the evil spirit said to them when they said that, Jesus I know, or I'm intimately close to. I know who he is. Uh, Paul, I recognize. That means I understand. But who are you? I'm sure it was a lot more viciously stated than that. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe he was laughing when he said it. I don't know. Put whatever creepy approach you want to put in your brain. Because the next thing that happens is bad. The man in whom, the man, singular, in whom was the evil spirit left on them, seven, mastered all of them, overpowered them, we would call it whipped them, so that they fled out of the house naked and bleeding says wounded it means bleeding this man tears them apart tears them apart so let's think about this a minute though they were traveling exorcists by profession at least in that context is is this possible if exorcists were really able to cast out demons then or now either then or now if they're able to do that but without true faith in christ how is that possible? I'm not going to attempt to answer that other than to make a suggestion. People say, well, it's just fake. Is it? Maybe. Could it be strategic? Could it be strategic in order to mislead, to make you seek power in a person and if you're looking for power instead of a person, then you're always going to miss Jesus, even if the miracle does happen. Even if that were to occur, 
you're going to celebrate the person and miss Jesus in the whole thing, or you're going to see Jesus as a power or a force and not a person. These exorcists here are like Simon. Remember the magician we talked about a few weeks back? They're like him. They want power and position. But guys, what's the position that Jesus calls us to? Surrender. Kneeling. Like the position that Jesus calls us to is humility. Serving. And all power in us, or Paul, or anybody else who professes Jesus, all power is God working in Christ through us. And, and that's it. Exorcist men in the day of Ephesus, they were common. This was no small thing. These were itinerant traveling ones, but they were set up everywhere. Kind of like maybe psychics and uh, fortune tellers or whatever are here. You could drive around and see the shops set up all over the place. They were for hire. Uh, whether they were real or not, Paul was for real. Paul was for real. Why? Because if nothing else, the demon said his name. Like, Paul was for real. And for these seven dudes, Paul was a Jew. They're family, right? In that sense, they're Jews, he's a Jew. They're linked by this priesthood anyway, which priesthood was corrupt for centuries by this point. But, but their ignorance about Jesus shows how disconnected they really were from their faith. The Jesus. See what it says there in that verse? The Jesus whom Paul preaches? What kind of relationship is that? (laughs) They probably knew about Jesus. They probably knew rumors of what had gone on. They may have even been in Jerusalem, like I said, because Jesus was crucified at Passover and rose shortly thereafter. They may know about all of this stuff. But they're not calling on him personally. They're saying, hey, yeah, the one that Paul uses, the, you know, the magic spell Paul says. In fact, I mentioned a minute ago, these Ephesian scroll uh, history records some scrolls that contained Jesus name. They say, I command you, quote, I command you by the name of Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Now, that would be people that have no idea who he was. Uh, that's called invoking. That's why they said, why the text there says to invoke the name of Jesus. That's what it means. I've heard everybody from ghost hunters to exorcists in movies and on TV command in the name of Jesus, you know, or I speak to you in Jesus' name. But they got zero faith in Jesus. They don't know anything about Jesus. They have no relationship with him. They're just shouting a name. They might as well say hocus pocus, abracadabra. They just think because those word, that word seems powerful to some that it's automatically powerful. Cannot, listen to me, listen to me. You cannot expect an evil spirit to be in shock and horror of Jesus' name coming out of your mouth if it doesn't cause you awe first. You cannot expect a demon or an evil spirit to be in any kind of shock or awe Because you say Jesus' name, if that name doesn't cause you some awe first. If it doesn't mean something to you, don't expect it to mean anything to that one. You know, by calling on the wicked to respond to Jesus' name, whether it's a demon or a person, any of us. If we're calling on somebody to respond to Jesus' name... You're claiming to have such a relationship with Jesus that you're speaking on his behalf with certainty.
that he's in your words. I'm not trying to scare you. I want you to share the gospel. I want you to talk about Jesus. I'm just saying, if you're claiming his name in some kind of powerful way, then you're saying, I have enough of a relationship with him that I know he's speaking through me and I know he's going to respond based on what I'm saying. I know he's going to. You better be right. You better be right. These seven men found out. You know what I'm saying? You better be right. But here's a question. Should we command demons or spirits to leave people? If you came in contact, and some of you may have, uh, I have. If you've come into contact with somebody who's possessed, typically don't see it here that often. You definitely see it in some other countries. But it's here too. It just gets written off by sickness or mental illness or whatever else, or he's crazy or homeless or whatever it is. Uh, Sometimes that's the case, but not always. But in any event, if you come into contact with one or somebody brings someone who they feel is, is it your responsibility to exercise or cast out the demon? Like if you're a Christian or a believer, should should you do that? James is probably one of the few verses that people can cling to in this. And it says... Resist the devil and he must flee. James says this in chapter 4, verse 7. But, look what it says around resist the devil and he must flee. He gives grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, first of all, he's speaking of a person in a position of humility and humble who needs grace. And then he says... Here's the verse. You see, resist the devil and he must flee in the middle. Look at the other two. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Number one, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What's going to make the devil flee? You flexed on him? You know what I mean? You spoke the name of Jesus. I know Jesus. Is that going to do it? I'm saved. No, dude, I got news for you. I don't care what the television has shown you. The devil's not afraid of you. But he sure doesn't want Jesus to draw near. I can guarantee you that. I can guarantee you that. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I promise you, if you do that and you're in a position of humility... And you've submitted yourself to God, meaning I'm following the Lord in all of this, then, hey, resist the devil. Stand firm. He's gone. Promise. Luke 10, verse 20, Jesus himself told his disciples, Do not, do not, do not, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. I mean, I had that verse, I guess. Do not, I'll tell you what it is, Luke 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus said, hey, if you feel like the, the evil spirits and whatever are, are hearing you, that's fine. But don't rejoice about that. Why wouldn't we? Wouldn't you want to rejoice about it? He said, don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Just be thankful that, that you have a place in heaven. But once again, and we're finish up here. Once again, exorcists 
aren't the point of this passage either. Notice Paul, other than being mentioned by the demon, is not even mentioned in this little occurrence. Let's get the last piece. Keep reading. Verse 17. And this event that we just talked about with the exorcist became known to all the residents of Ephesus. So everybody who lives there is like, I mean, word spreading like crazy. Jews and Greeks, fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, was raised, was elevated. Also, many of those who were now believers, don't miss that, now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts, excuse me, brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Ironically, both the exorcists and the demons here, or demon, are used by God to advance his kingdom to an epic level. Did you get that? The result of these failed exorcists that are not following the Lord anyway, and this demon, that whole encounter, there's no gospel presentation. There's no, like, repent and believe. There's no a band, worship song, come down front. Matter of fact, everybody interacting with each other here is wicked. And God used that to explode his kingdom and Jesus' name into Ephesus. That attack sent everybody into a panic. This has got to frustrate the devil. I'm just saying. Got to frustrate the devil. That attack sent everybody into a panic, and they all got desperate to be free of anything that might give access to a demon in their lives. Anything. They turned, in result of that as well, to the one name that was above all these names. They all turned to Jesus because even the demon endorsed him (laughs) even the demon endorsed him they wanted their homes to be free though of any access point to something like that how you doing with that not trying to throw any stones but how you how's your home with that i'm not going to sit here and list things i don't think i have to how's your life looking with that Notice there that Luke said believers brought stuff too. They're either toying around with it, whatever it is. Toying around with it, or maybe they're hanging on to something because they feel like it's good luck. Or maybe it's fun. Maybe it's just goofy. Maybe somebody they think important gave it to them. It matters. I'm, I'm, I got nothing in mind here in particular related to you, but I'm asking. Just think about it like... What in your home? Are there things in your home that are that way? Why burn the books? Is that how you deal with the occult? That's how they do it in movies, right? You burn things. That's how you, that's how you do it. Uh, that just makes magic out of the fire. Now the fire is magical because it's able to end an occult thing. That's not why they burned them. They burned them in order to make sure... But they were destroyed, so they didn't destroy anybody else. That was just making sure they were utterly destroyed, so they didn't destroy anybody else. Uh, they esti- if, if you were to do the math here, you're talking about, by modern day terms, millions of dollars worth of stuff here. This would have been people's livelihood. This, in a lot of cases, would have been people's businesses. This is less about 
bring your Iron Maiden records and your uh, Harry Potter books and more about Ouija boards and tarot cards and and books that you do see power in or attempt to use to cast spells or do witchcraft or those kind of things. But even out of believers. I've been around believers that play around with tarot cards, goofing off, you know. The word or the uh, point here is that they dropped their entire lives into that fire. But the enemy pushes back. I'm not going to read it. You can read it in your own time. The next uh, paragraph or so, uh, uh, some guys who are losing money because they made idols to Artemis, and they're losing money, and they're seeing that this temple of Artemis is losing worshipers. They do what they do. They start a mob. They get the whole city of Ephesus riled up, chanting, great is Artemis, and they come after these people, attempting to attack and have them in, uh, arrested at the very least. Look, spiritual warfare is warfare. You better not assume a win means the end. And I'm guilty of that one all the time. You better not assume a win means the end. It's, it's a war. It's a battle. And they come right back after Paul in mobs. And Paul wasn't even involved in this account with the Ephesus. I mean, the uh, uh, exorcist. He wasn't even involved in that. But his name was associated with Jesus' name. And even came out of the mouth of a demon, the same Jesus that everybody's turning to, and it caused him to be swept in. You can read it in your own time, but here's the deal. Let me wrap this up. You may feel like cheering uh, when you hear these exorcists get smoked, and that this demon knew Paul. Like, that's all kind of crazy, cool stuff. But before you get too busy cheering, are you sure you want a demon to recognize you? I'm be honest with you. When I was way younger, I used to think that was the coolest. Like, I want that. Blah, blah, blah. I have no chance now. Like, I'm not trying to be holy or a coward. Either one. I'm just being honest. A demon to say, David, I know. Uh, David, I recognize. Especially one that violent. And we don't have to fear. You don't have to be afraid. It is true. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. It is true. But our enemy is vicious at opposing our king. And our allegiance to him makes us a big target. So here's where we're going to close this. How do you handle it? Talk all about this thing, all about the occult, all this stuff. How do you handle it when you're faced with the occult or with demons? If you do feel like that's something in your life, something that's oppressing you, something that's attacking you, if you feel like maybe there's somebody in your life that's bringing that around you, whatever it is, what do you do? How do we handle it? It's real simple, y'all. Worship. Man, today was good, too, so far. And it ain't over yet. But worship. Worship the Lord. You don't need to challenge them. Just think about it this way. You don't need to challenge them. You need to call him. It's that simple. You don't need to challenge them. You need to call call him. I'll give you some verses. Psalm 23, 3. God, you are holy, enthroned on what? The praises of Israel. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. 
I know that's poetic, but you got to understand what he's saying. Deuteronomy 4, 7. What great nation is there that has a God who is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call to him? That's prayer and worship. That term, the way that's being used, is implying both. In prayer and worship, he's near. He comes close. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. Through him, through Christ, let us continually, daily, moment by moment, always offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What? What do you mean? The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Don't invoke his name. Praise his name. Don't invoke his name. Praise his name through praise, worship, and prayer. The Lord comes near and he's enthroned on it. Think about that. He comes near in all of the power of the seated, being seated on the throne of creation. It produces fruit, the fruit of lips. It produces fruit. It brings results. And that comes from knowing and honoring his name. But remember here, Paul was focused on making disciples. If we go back and we look at Paul in all these crazy wild miracles that are going on, Paul is focused on making disciples. And I kept telling you the point is not this and the point is not this. It's not because this whole section bookends in verse 10 and verse 20 with two things, the same thing twice. All Asia heard the word and the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. Not Paul, not miracles, the word of the Lord, that thing you hold in your hand, the same thing. This is where the power is, right here. You guys want to stand up with me? Um, We're going to do another song, and then we'll call it for the day. But listen. Worship matters. Like when we get ready to sing here in just about a second, it's worship. I mean, do you actually expect God to draw near when you're singing worship? To be enthroned on it? Think about that. To be enthroned on it? Man. Let me pray for us. Lord, none of this that I'm reading today would be possible. Paul, in anything that came or happened around Paul, would not be possible. There would be no church and there would be no hope without you, Jesus. Without you accepting a human body without you living a perfect life, without you laying your body on a cross and suffering indescribably out of love for people who are sinners against you. To hang there in suffering, being mocked, and say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Lord, things I can't get my brain around, things that are so full of grace and love that I don't have any reference point to be able to grab hold of it. But if that weren't good enough, Lord, you conquered the grave. 
Like you, you beat the one enemy none of us have any hope against, which is death. And in doing so, you took from Satan all the power he has. You took from all of these demons all the power that they have. And all authority is yours. And Lord, I don't know if everyone in this room has recognized that. But I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here today that hasn't, that they do today. That they recognize that you are who you say you are and that they lay their life in your hand. They call out to you and ask you to be their Lord. God, I pray that today as we finish with another song here, that it's not the end of the day, it's not the end of worship. Lord, that we would carry it on throughout the day as we think back on your word, not on what Dave said, on your word. And as we think back maybe on the songs that we've sang and what we may hear in the moments ahead. And let us, Lord, bring you near through worship. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.